A note that today's program does include discussion of intercourse in animals, including mentions of the anatomy used in such intercourse. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. Latif Nasser. Lulu Miller. You ready to get wet? Wet? Mm-hmm. Because we are hopping in a boat. Okay. It's cold. It's windy. It's 1972. <laughs> so in the boat with us is a young married couple, George Hunt. Now I'm just an old doofus. <laughs> and Molly Warner. We didn't have white hair back then. We had darker hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Picture them in flannels, big rubber boots, binoculars around their neck. Yeah. All those things. And they're about 30 miles off the coast of Southern California, approaching this big, imposing hunk of rock. Called Santa Barbara Island. It's about a mile across, treeless. Mostly cliff around the edges. Totally uninhabited. There's no dock there. So you have to row up to waves on rocks and jump off at just the right time. And on top of that rock, Molly's going to spot something that will change the lives of millions of people. Mm. All thanks to... Gulls. Gulls like seagulls? Mm -hmm. See, George is an ornithologist, and they had traveled all the way out to the island because there was a wild colony out there he really wanted to study. Okay. Only problem was that it was the middle of the spring semester. And... I had to teach. Back on the mainland at UC Irvine. So I had to leave Molly out there. Oh, so, man. After helping her get set up, he hops on the boat back home. So, But, you know, George is a young professor trying to prove himself, yes. and Molly happens to be trained as an anthropologist. Yeah. So she agrees to spend a couple months out there, you know, watching. Oh, it's amazing to be in a, in a gull colony and you're just sitting there and all of a sudden there's a falcon that flies over. Mm. The entire colony jumps up into the air and screams and circles. Mm. But what she was really there to observe was, well, mating season. The female will beg for food, going I don't really remember what the males say. I think we actually have George doing that. You probably do. The male starts waving his wings He gets on top. Steadies his wobbly legs on her back. Puts his cloaca next to hers. Wait, the cloaca is... The private part. Oh. It's a little opening. Males and females both have them. And to finish the act, the male kisses his cloaca to hers and... And fertilizes her. So anyway, back to Molly. Moon's coming out, stars, winds. This is her existence is on this island. And one morning... It's about a week... After the mating has begun. Mm-hmm. And she begins walking around, looking at the nest. And suddenly, eggs are appearing. Okay. And so she's kind of going on this little Easter egg hunt. One egg. She's just marking. Two eggs. Her little clipboard, how many eggs are in each nest. Yeah. Two eggs. Three eggs. When she sees this one nest. That had... Six eggs in it. Six. Right, which is way more than these birds usually like. It would be like having septuplets. And as she goes along... Two, two, three. Six. Six. There was a good chunk of them. Six. Six. 
she's seeing that about one in 10 of hundreds of nests has way more eggs than it's supposed to have. Hmm. Of course, there weren't any cell phones. That would have been extremely useful. Yeah. We did have a radio phone thing. So she radios to George. The communication was so awful. Like, there's too many eggs and... You need to come out and see what's going on. And so I did. And she shows him around the island all these nests just brimming with eggs. And I was absolutely thunderstruck. He's never seen or even heard of so many eggs in one single nest. So then the question was, what's going on? They figured maybe there was something going on inside the birds that was making them pump out so many extra eggs. Mm. So Molly went and trapped the birds. One of the couples from the nests with tons of eggs. I then euthanized them and dissected them. Ah, thank you for your service to science, that pair. And and they just left six eggs hanging? Yeah, gosh, yeah, that's sad. I didn't Mm. even think about that. Yeah, so they left those eggs cold in the wind. Okay, it's a it's a tri- it's a very sad story. Um, yeah. So George opens up the first bird, realizes it's the female. This species, the males and females are are basically identical. Um, and he looks and he sees the reproductive tract, the ovaries, perfectly fine. So then he takes a look at her mate. I open the second bird, and we can see the ovaries. It's another female. I turned to Molly and said, are you sure these two actually came from the same thing? Like this couldn't have been a nesting pair. (laughs) Yes, they were. (laughs) You know, she was really quite indignant because she's a very careful scientist. And she said, I'm absolutely sure. So at that point, we knew we had two females incubating eggs in the same nest. So they go back and check all those other nests with six eggs. They find a way of identifying the sex without euthanizing them and discover they are all, all of them, females. And as they watch them, they realize that they aren't just um, roommates. The females will mate with each other. (gasps) Really? They are having sex with each other. Wow. One of the females... We'll get on top of the other female and make the clucking sound as if she's the male. And we'll raise her wings. Steady her legs and kiss the cloacas. It's the whole same dance. Wow. Now, they're not actually making babies this way. They'll have to go get fertilized by a male somewhere else. Hmm. But after that happens, the two females come together and incubate the eggs together. And The chicks are very cute when they're hatching. These little fuzzy things. And when a chick does hatch, these two ladybirds take turns... Throwing up their fish for the little guys to eat. Giving them the nice baby food. Giving them the nice baby food. So the smaller gulls that... All in all, George and Molly found that about 10% of the nests on Santa Barbara Island had two moms inside. And that was a, oh my goodness, this is, this is something new. As far as I know, it was the first documentation of female-female pairing in any wild animal. All right, bias alert. Latif, my friend, you may recall that I, too, am a female-female paired vertebrate. (laughs) 
Um, I am a lady married to a lady. Um, we've got two kids. And so when I first heard about this, I was I was totally charmed by it. And so I thought, oh, this would be a fun Mother's Day story, maybe a Valentine's Day mm. story, whatever. I wanted to just tell a little story about it. Um, uh-huh. But when I started looking into it, it turned out that the story of the gulls is so much bigger than the gulls. Mm. They would become a kind of turning point in our understanding of how homosexuality works in the animal world and even how we think about and talk about homosexuality in us. Okay, you sold me. All right, okay, I'm in. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, so to get us there, I guess, first off, you have to know that at the time George and Molly discovered these gulls, the scientific establishment's official stance on homosexuality was that it was unnatural, not really a part of the natural world, not a part of the animal kingdom. And that is a belief that, as best as I can tell, was born back in the 1200s. Wow, we're going way back. Yeah. All right. So come with me there for a brief moment. Great. We're going to meet a man named Thomas Aquinas, the famous philosopher-priest who wrote in one of his most famous works that homosexuality was a, quote, crime against nature. Ah. And this idea, this phrase, this belief, it spread like wildfire all over Western Europe. A lot of the laws that banned homosexuality explicitly used that phrase, crime against nature. But then with the rise of science in the 17th and 18th century, you also see how this belief gets embedded there too. Because whenever scientists did stumble across same-sex mating in animals, which they did, Uh they would either not publish on it, And you can actually see records of, like, the notes that people sat on or Mm. accounts that got flat-out rejected from publications. Or if they did write about it, they'd explain it away as, like, a, quote, perversion or aberration or even abomination. Scientists using that language. Yeah, totally. And then when Darwin comes along in the 1800s, the ideas of evolution end up kind of bolstering the notion that homosexuality shouldn't appear in nature. Basically, if the whole point of life is to reproduce, why would you have a creature that can't reproduce, you know? And then instead of perverse, it would get labeled with words like evolutionary outlier or fluke or mistake. Right. And in what other scenario are like Darwin and the priests like pulling (laughs) in the same direction? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of strange alignment made it so like when a scientist would see a thing in nature, they could still manage to label it as unnatural. Even though I just saw it in nature. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. And in fact, when George and Molly first tried to publish on the seagulls in the 1970s, the ornithological journal they sent it to rejected it. They said, well, this is so unusual. We want more data. So we said, sure, we'll go get more data. We got more data. So they did. Year after year, they kept collecting data. They took photos. They got more and more research assistants to help. And finally, it was sufficiently mind boggling to us that we said, why don't we send this to science? George finally submits a paper to the journal Science. And in June of 1977, a paper is released called Female Female Pairing in Western Gulls Loris Occidentalis in Southern California. And basically, the world goes crazy. It sets off this media frenzy. The phone doesn't stop ringing. George remembers newspapers calling from all over the world. Can I speak to George Hunt, please? Wanting to interview him. The London Times, the Melbourne Times. Hi there, I'm calling from. India. 
all over this country. Because in documenting these islands full of homosexual gulls, George and Molly hadn't just challenged a central belief of science. They had clumsily detonated that centuries-old justification that people were still using to try to keep homosexuality a crime. All right, so quick lay of the land, June 1977, when this paper drops, over 100 countries and a majority of U.S. states still criminalized homosexuality, many based on Aquinas' old phrase that it was a, quote, crime against nature. This is historian Lillian Faderman. We have heard you referenced multiple times as the mother of lesbian history. (laughs) I I won't call myself that, but if you want to introduce me as that, I... Don't object. (laughs) She lived through this era and said that 1977 was a very charged moment. Then the fight for LGBTQ rights. On one hand, there had been all these strides. There were the first gay pride parades. The medical profession had declassified homosexuality as a mental illness. And more and more people started coming out of the closet. And winning rights. Yes. But in response to all that momentum, there came a voice. Come along with me to my little corner of the world. A woman named Anita Bryant. Maybe you've heard of her. Mm-hmm, sure. She's a pop singer, an evangelical Christian. She did like the orange juice commercials, right? Exactly. She was the spokesperson for the Florida Citrus Commission. Yeah. And a spokesperson for the anti-gay movement. She called her organization Save Our Children. Save Our Children Against Homosexuals Incorporated. With the argument that homosexuals, uh, they're very dangerous. And to try to convince people of this, she would often point to nature, saying stuff like, Not even barnyard animals do the disgusting things that homosexuals do. That is, homosexuality is so much against nature that it's not to be found even among animals. She was a notoriously great organizer. Like, she she could really mobilize people. Hugely. And this tactic of pointing to the supposed empirical wrongness or deviance of homosexuals, oh man, did it work. It was a decisive end to Dade County's homosexual controversy. Just two weeks before George and Molly's study dropped, she pulled off her first victory, and it was a big one. She successfully organized voters in Miami to come out and vote to strip away legal protections for gay folks. They wanted no part of a law which protects homosexuals. And so right on the heels of that, when this scientific report on some pretty natural-looking homosexuality comes out... We got some really quite nasty letters about our work, that, you know, this was bad. We were undermining proper beliefs. There were editorials slamming George's work, and even Congress jumped in. Really? Yeah. In retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah. He had received government funding from the National Science Foundation, and some conservative congressmen were so upset about this that— Congress held up the NSF budget. Wow. It's, like, genuinely hard to put your mind back to understand, like, the Anita Bryant's or the people who, who who can't stomach even a scientist documenting this in seagulls. I don't think it's hard to go back there. No? I mean, the Anita Bryant's are alive and well. They're banning books. They're trying to dial back 
queer rights based on a really similar argument. Right, right. But the thing I feel like I need to confess that I didn't even realize until working on this story is that I held a version of this belief, of Aquinas' old belief, too. Really? Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up with religion. I woke into a world where I realized I was queer at a time where, like, there was so much more acceptance. Right. But if I did grow up with anything, it's like my scientist father, evolution. Like, I just, I absolutely believed it was unnatural. Mm. And I would hear every so now and then, like, I grew up outside of Boston. There were, like, gay swans in Boston Common. And I was like, oh! But it felt like a byproduct of captivity. Yeah. So... About a year ago, when I first heard about George and Molly's study, like I had this 40-year delayed version of what happened for a lot of queer people when the study came out. I was absolutely thrilled. That's Lillian Faderman again. Gay periodicals all over the country picked up on this immediately. They published cartoons of like the gay, the lesbian seagulls like pooping in Anita Bryant's eye. <laughs> yes. Here's one. <laughs> there were songs. And plays. One show actually had two women in seagull outfits. That's Pamela Gray. She wrote one of those plays. I went to it, and afterward I went up and introduced myself to the director who just about fell over. (laughs) There were boat rides out to go see the gulls. I gave up a couple of Sundays to lead trips out to the islands. We got on a boat. This is Edgar Sochel, a queer ecologist who went out to the island to just commune. It was super loud. With his queer avian elders. It was like, ah, ah, ah. 24 hours. (laughs) For a time, the lesbian seagull really became like a mascot in the gay pride movement. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Amazing. But in the anti-gay movement, the gulls did not have an effect. Anita Bryant only went on to have more wins in the following years, getting more discriminatory practices in place in other cities. And in the 80s, when the question of homosexuality finally reaches the Supreme Court in Bowers v. Hardwick, the justices vote against legalizing homosexual sex for the whole country, again, calling it unnatural Hmm. in the opinion. Wow. But if you turn, if you mosey on over to the halls of science, you see that the seagull study ushered in a flood, or pardon me, a parade of queer animals tromping through onto the scientific record. Just hundreds of studies, starting with the hoofed animals. Deer, giraffe, antelope, and gazelles. This is John Megahan. He illustrated a whole book of queer animals. Wild sheep, goats, and buffalo. Then you got primates. Chimps, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans. That's Elliot Schreffer, who just came out with a book on the science of queer animals. Bonobo females having sex will get face-to-face to do it. They will rub their clitorises against each other huh. to have loud, rapturous orgasms. Ooh. <laughs> Heading underwater. We have the clownfish. This is Christine Wilkinson. She's a biologist and ecologist. And the Amazon river dolphin. Is that the pink one? Yeah, they're pink. Okay. They love cuddling, which I think is very sweet. Mm. Oh, that's nice. There's also like whales, seals, manatees, bottlenose dolphins. Males will bond for life. Um, And a study put it at 2.4 times an hour on average that the males are having sex with each other. That's 
so much. It sounds exhausting. Just when I thought I'd covered all of them. Rattlesnakes. Hyenas. Marsupials. Hedgehogs. Rodents. They just kept coming. Bats. Having oral sex with each other. In flight. Upside down. Oh, I love it. And you have birds, geese, swans, and ducks. Swallows, warblers, finches, sparrows, blackbirds and crows, birds of paradise, other birds. But the animal that really took the cake for me is this striped little lizard called the New Mexico Whiptail Lizard. This entire species is made up of females. You can have a species with no males? Turns out you can. These lezzy lizzies actually <laughs> simulate copulation with each other, which increases their fertility. They then reproduce asexually, but instead of popping out a clone, they produce twice the number of chromosomes, okay. which get recombined to form more genetically diverse offspring, <gasps> just like they would in a fertilized egg. No. Yes. No. Never heard of that before. So they're freaking going to persist. What the last nearly 50 years of scientific study has revealed is that there is not a single Banana slugs. corner earthworms of this planet where animals are not being super freaking weird. <laughs> Wow. Right? And I do want to just say that I'm focusing on same-sex mating, um, but the story of sexual fluidity in nature, animals being multiple sexes at once or changing sexes over a lifetime, that has been discovered to be such a deep part of nature too. But for the same-sex mating thing, as scientists looked closely and measured oxytocin levels or counted offspring survival rates or done the science thing on it, yeah, yeah. Um, they're seeing all these benefits, evolutionary benefits. Same-sex mating can strengthen hunting alliances. It can help resolve conflict during resource scarcity. It can reduce stress and strengthen social bonds, which is really good for fitness. And it can even increase the survival rate of offspring. Huh. How? So my favorite example of this is in white-tailed deer. Males will mate with one another, and there are these societies, these all-male societies of deer called velvet horns that roam the forest in packs of like two to seven, and they don't have full-on big antlers. They have these, these little velvet ones, um, so they don't fight, and so that leaves them healthier than the other ones because they're not getting injured, and these all-male packs will take in orphaned fawns and raise them and protect them. <laughs> and learning about the sheer breadth of how queerness is a part of nature, this thread that was there all along but we missed, but I missed, it changed my understanding of how I fit on the tree of life. There can be a loneliness to being LGBT that in a kind of broad existence sense. Elliot Schreffer again. That we are a blip of a strange mm -hmm. time of human culture that created us and that without foundation in the past and without future, that this kind of, it can feel annihilating. Um, and I love the idea that Queerness is, does not make us an anomaly, does not separate us from the natural world, but instead it is 
our heritage as animals. I would love to end the story right here, but I can't because after a short break, I have a lesson to learn about the dangers of finding your belonging in nature. We'll be back. Latif. Lulu. Radio Lab. Gulls. And where are we going next? All right, so we need to take a brief pit stop in Washington, D.C., because about 30 years after George and Molly first discovered the gulls, the quote-unquote lesbian seagulls make an appearance at the Supreme Court. The, gu- the gulls did? <laughs> kind of, yeah. So in 2003, Lawrence v. Texas, the case that will overturn the remaining bans on queer sex and legalize it for the whole country, make it a constitutional right. It's this huge victory. Um, there was a brief that was filed that said, basically, you can't call homosexuality a crime against nature because look how common it is in nature. Um, and they footnote this book in the middle of which is a section complete with illustrations on the lesbian gulls. Wow. And so whether or not any justice like opened that book and changed their mind because of that, um, I do love to just know that the homosexual seagulls were there that day, like like cheering, cheering from the rafters. <laughs> Cheering from the footnotes. Yeah, cheering from the footnotes. (laughs) Molly, this all kind of started with your eye. That's right. (laughs) It started with you noticing something. And I think whether or not it's a big part of your life now, I know that I at least feel this odd gratitude to the grueling spring you spent out there because in in a real way it is part of why I feel a deeper sense of belonging than maybe like a queer woman 50 years ago so I guess I just kind of wanted to say thank you well I appreciate that thank you <laughs> so what I'm really hoping I can do next is actually go out to the island I'm I'm trying right now to get my editor to send me with my wife and our two little boys to go camp there for a night so we can, you know, collect the sounds of the gulls and then at night be nesting down with our little brood in our little nest and picturing that there's like female-female pairs with their little nests and and just feeling like this oneness. <laughs> but, you know, the female-female pairing died out. Wait, what? What? So there aren't, there's still seagulls, but the island is hetero now. How did that happen? Well, George's theory is that back in the 70s, chemicals like DDT were getting into the birds, but for some reason were more toxic to the males, which left an island without that many males around. And a female that's primed to mate will mate with the best prospect available. So they pair up with another female. And once DDT was banned, the male population could rebound, so the females didn't need to pair up anymore. Mm. That's his theory. I, Has it been seen since on the islands that you know of? Not that I know of. Um, do, you, do you guess it, that like in it, these 30 years, 40 years, do you think sometimes it happens just because of... I have not seen it since. Okay. Nobody has told me they saw them. 
But isn't it this hard was the to early see? 70s. Isn't it hard to see with the naked eye? Sorry to interrupt, but couldn't it be happening without us realizing? It could be happening without us realizing, but the eggs are big and obvious. And mm. there are enough people walking around in gull colonies and uh, dealing with gulls in one way or another. People would be aware of lots of eggs, especially mm. after what we had. But uh, no, I, d I don't think it's going on now. Um. Sorry. <laughs> I know. I was like, as a queer person, that's... <laughs> I can hear you. Please tell me they still like doing that. No, no. I But I appreciate you, George Hunt, as a, as a just man wed to the facts and the observations, which is how we got here. But yeah, there's a deflation in the like, you know, you want to, you want, you want a certain story sometimes. Yes. So to just sum that all up, it means that the animal that opened the floodgates to all the research which has helped us see the naturalness of homosexuality in nature was most likely a fluke. Uh. Which honestly knocked the wind out of me. It made me feel... Um, Embarrassed. Okay, I mean, what is your deal with these queer animals? And then, okay, so queer animals, queer animals. This is someone very close to me, my wife Grace. Is this the first time I've dragged you onto the microphone in ten years of being together? I think. Yeah. Well, welcome. And I asked her to talk to me because well, the whole time I've been working on this, Grace has been side-eyeing well, what she calls this is your pathological obsession. <laughs> with finding queer animals. Like one book after another of gay animal stories started popping up <laughs> in, in our home. No matter how many times I put them away, they would be back where they started. And like, I thought it was cute at first, but then it kept going. It almost, to me, it felt like you were seeking validation of our relationship in a certain way, almost. Oh, whoa. Of our relationship. Not like our relationship specifically, but of like your own experience of being queer. And though at first I kind of denied that, that, the more we talked. I thought you said at some point that it like brought reassurance to you. Yeah. The I more I did realize that maybe that like they were like giving me something, like a, like a, a shield against a message that you can get as you walk through the world as a queer family. What do you mean? I mean, the, the state next door, the attorney general three years ago wanted to scratch me off my son's birth certificate. We each have a kid who's biological and one who's not. And mm -hmm. for the non-biological parent, we're currently allowed to both be on the birth certificate, but anyone in the gay community knows that like, you want to also adopt your child because you don't know where rights are going. Mm. And the process of adopting your own child to have the state officially recognize each of us, you have to submit yourself to a background check. You have to submit yourself to a house visit. Knowing that the presumption is you're probably not fit, you have to like experience looking at your floors and like your body and wondering, oh 
God, there's a dust bunny under this part of my <laughs> kitchen. Oh, what is in my cupboards? Am I too messy today? There is a. Co- I mean, there's literally coffee stain on my pants right now, and and it and and just that process, like any broccolaca on the street, it seems can go make a baby, and the state's fine with it. But should it be two women, or should it be two men, or should there be a trans person involved, and you'd like to adopt that child, your own child? You have to prove that you're fit. Mm. I mean, I get that. You know, when we're in public sometimes with our kids and it's like, you know, if they're misbehaving, it feels worse because we're two moms and you're like, oh, I don't want it to reflect badly on us. Right. And they're like, see, it is bad for them. I don't know. There's just something so like profoundly like a fresh drink of water to just like, you know, and that's why I'm cherry picking the studies where the homo animals have higher offspring survival rates and where it's about like species, like where I'm like, it's good for a community. It's good for a kid. I mean, it just makes me sad that you think of it like that. It makes me sad that those laws are still contributing to you feeling gross, you know, like, or to delegitimizing our relationship. I mostly feel angry, FYI. But I think the, the salient feeling is disgust or, or, or like wrongness. Yeah, I don't know. It's like the fear that there are some people who think you would be dangerous to their kid. And I, there's a low grade always trying to prove otherwise. Yeah. But I feel like those, like all the discriminatory practices should be taken away just because, not because. Because we're like human beings, not because we also exist in nature. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why do we need to prove our worth by existing in nature? Why not just acknowledge that, like, whatever, the relationships are, like, it's love. Like, it's all it is is, like, it's just loving people. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oh my God, what time is it? Do we have to pick up our kids? Holy Oh my God, we gotta go. Okay, um, oh God, we're gonna be last moms at daycare and then they'll be like, lesbians, they'll pick up their kids on time. She's putting on her jacket, she's leaving. All right, am I getting the kids or are we getting Um, we want a boat. Coming up after a short break, love stays in the air, this time with America's favorite bird, the bald eagle. Stay tuned. Tweet, tweet, caca. This is Radiolab. I'm Lulu Miller. Today, love is in the air. We are telling stories about love and affection and care that takes place up in the air. And for our next segment, we are going to hear a story that originally aired on Radiolab's first spinoff show for families, Terrestrials. It is a show that I host. It's all about nature and the strangeness waiting right here on Earth. And from our first season The story that was probably the most surprising is one that happens to take place up in the air. And it's going to begin in three, two, one. Imagine your skin turned to feathers. 
long, dark brown feathers. Over 7,000 feathers. And your arms stretch to over twice the size of your body and catch the wind. And you're higher than the airplanes. You're soaring through the clouds. And you're feeling the cold air go through your feathers. And now your eyes bulge to bigger than your brain, letting you see tiny things from miles away. If a rabbit's running along the shoreline, you can see that rabbit. Suddenly, a dark spot in the blue lake beneath you catches your eye and you start dive-bombing down, down. And you drag your wings along the water of the lake. Your feet curl and grow talons and you catch a fish, which you then devour with your very sharp beak on your very white head. You are a bald eagle now. In our language, we say Wambli. That's right, America's national symbol. You'll find it on quarters and dollar bills and presidential flags and military insignias. This glowering bird of prey with an intimidating brow bone, razor sharp beak and terrifying talons meant to convey to the world a ferocious fight to the death independence. But uh, today we've got a story about a man who looked up into the trees and saw something that suggests we may have this big birdie kind of wrong. Yeah, well, glad to connect. (laughs) This is our guy in question, Ed. Ed Britton. He's a wildlife biologist who works for the government helping to protect a stretch of forest alongside the Mississippi River in Illinois. And one chilly day, Ed looks up into the trees and sees something... Strange. It looks like there are three bald eagles sitting together near one nest. Yes, And to Ed's eye, it appears to be one female and... Two males. But he thought there was no way that could be, because everything he'd learned in his scientific training said that if you were to put two males nearby each other... There's going to be trouble. They were said to squawk and claw so viciously, it sometimes resulted in death. That's how territorial they are. And this reputation for do-or-die aggression is one of the main reasons the Founding Fathers chose the bald eagle as America's national symbol back in 1782. I think maybe the first Europeans that came here seen the power of eagles. That's Natani Means, a hip-hop artist who's indigenous, native to this land. And he says that his ancestors from the Oglala Lakota and Diné tribes had admired the bald eagle long before the Founding Fathers showed up. The eagle, to us, is very sacred though for slightly different reasons. It's the highest in the sky. It's the closest to creator. It was seen as a messenger between worlds and a healer. We carry eagle feathers that can help in healing ceremonies. They take a lot of our illnesses away. Now, the Founding Fathers weren't as focused on the potential healing in the feathers as they were in the potential fight in the talons, so they began carving images of the bird on swords and battleships to warn the world that they were not afraid to fight to the death to protect their newly claimed territory. So they were up in a tree about 100 feet high. So back to Ed. 
squinting up at what seemed to be two male bald eagles and a female cozying up together. He just couldn't quite believe what he was seeing. It's so difficult because that nest is so high up. And then the nesting season ends, the birds fly away, and he figures that's probably it. Mm -hmm. Except the next year, he swears he sees the trio again. And the next year? Again. Now, people didn't always believe Ed when he told them what he was seeing. But then, in 2016, this trio of bald eagles happened to flutter down and begin nesting in a tree that was next to a webcam. I just thought that cam was so unique. This is Nell, a webcam watcher from Jacksonville, Florida. You know, because eagles don't usually three's company. (laughs) And in an instant, there was no more doubt. The three ferocious birds of prey were living peacefully as a trio. I think people were just coming together over that fact that it was something different. Another cam watcher, Christine from New Hampshire. It was great to be able to look in on it and say, wow, what the heck's going on now, you know? It was quickly confirmed that it was indeed two males and a female. The female's bigger. You know, she's Hmm. several pounds bigger. Uh, I call her the boss. (laughs) Webcam viewers named her? Hope. And they named the males? Valor 1. And? Valor 2. Valor meaning, like, courage? Yes, uh uh-huh. How do you tell the males apart? You know, we don't like to body shame them, but they call Valor 1 skinny legs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Does Valor 2 have any look? He has a dark spot in his eye, and it's very unique. Thousands of people started tuning in. I had them on my computer from the time I turned the computer on to the time I turned the computer off. Watching in crystal clear detail this thing that scientists and patriots thought could never happen. I mean, did you ever see it where all three of them were like snuggled into the oh, nest yes, together yes, at the same time? Absolutely. Yeah? Oh, yes. Yep. Wow. By day, they took turns tidying the nest, bringing one another food. Mostly fish, but we also saw ducks. Whole ducks? Yep. We saw parts of deer. Mm. And after many cold winter nights keeping each other warm in that nest, come February, three white eggs appeared. And a few weeks later, three baby eaglets. You know, they were so tiny, oh my, and so adorable. Yes, indeed. (laughs) And as biologist Ed watches these three parents caring for their babies. They were the happiest family. He starts thinking about why this unusual trio actually makes sense. Because, see, Hope had been trying to make a family for years before she linked up with the two daddies. And this is a little sad, but she had a hard time. Her baby sometimes got cold or fell out of the nest when she was away hunting. And they didn't always make it. Yeah, it was awfully sad. And those losses were huge. Because bald eagles had been endangered, almost extinct, so every birth mattered. Where I grew up in southern Illinois, we never saw bald eagles. That was back in the 40s and the 50s. I'm I'm elderly. (laughs) Humans had almost wiped out bald eagles from hunting them, cutting down their forests, using chemicals. But as Ed grew up, 
He was a part of the group of people who tried everything they could think of to save bald eagles. They protected forests and banned hunting of bald eagles and stopped using chemicals that harmed them. But looking up at the trees, he realized it was like this trio of eagles had come up with a brilliant technique all of their own. To be able to witness it, that's the miracle. You know, it doesn't have to be a traditional family for it to work. And by June, as the forest turned soft with green leaves, one by one, each of the three eaglets with newly lanky wings tested the air and leapt away. Year after year, those three parents stay together, fledging more and more eaglets and in the process challenging scientists' notions about what a natural family looks like. Until one cold evening in March, hope screams out. Eagles, when they alert, they have a certain call to one another. That's webcam watcher Nell again. I saw Hope looking up into the sky, and you could see she was tracking. And then she started doing her alert call to her partners to come, you know, to come see what's going on. And what's going on is that two stranger eagles were dive-bombing the nest, attacking Hope and her two newest babies. Our phone lines light up. With people saying, Oh my gosh, something terrible's just happened. You've got to get out there and do something. Ed flips on his live feed of the cam and sees a very large bird, which we believe to be a female, was on the back of Hope. Her talons were digging into Hope's shoulders. There's no dads on the nest. The dads are both down on the ground fighting off the other invading eagle. The two babies, they didn't look good. They looked scared of this huge eagle attacking their mom. I wanted to reach through the computer monitor and grab that other eagle <laughs> is what I wanted to do. And they struggled for over an hour. The last thing I saw was Hope and her going off the nest. They just, they basically dragged one another off one side of the nest and went down to the ground. Ed and his team rush out into the forest to search around on the ground for Hope. But meanwhile, up in that nest, those babies are all alone. It looked like they hadn't been fed for a while. They were ragged. They were weak. And then suddenly... I saw the dads taking over, Valor 1 and Valor 2, like little troopers. The dads fly back up into the nest to defend their babies. It was such a relief that they were there. But right on their tails are the two invading eagles. They return and they keep attacking. They wanted to kill everything up there and take the nest over. The sun rises, and the attackers keep at it for days, weeks. But those dads? They just defended that nest with their lives, not caring what happened to them, but caring for those little baby eaglets. And the two dads, Valor 1 and Valor 2, valiantly, very valiantly fought off this pair of eagles. And after about three weeks, the attacks finally ended. Hope was never seen again. Nobody's sure exactly what happened to her, but those two dads stayed with their babies as the air grew warm 
as yellow and purple flowers began poking their way up through the dirt and kids began fishing on the Mississippi River, the dads kept watch over their chicks, bringing them food and keeping them warm at night. Until finally, come June... The two chicks ended up uh, growing and, and leaving the nest. It was extremely happy. Yes, indeed. We gave him the greatest dad's award of the year. Ed says he was totally shocked by how things unfolded, by how caring and collaborative the two dads were together. And this is just one incredible survival story that uh, I would have never fathomed in my career. There's a lot that people don't know about eagles. This is Natani again. They're very compassionate. And what Ed learned from watching the trio, Natani learned from his family and culture. The first time I saw an eagle, he was huge, man, huge. I went home and I told my dad, you know, hey, I seen an eagle today. And then he, he sat me down and he said, when an eagle chooses a mate, they're together for life. They're always taking care of the family. It was then that Natani first learned about the bald eagle's softer side. How the creature isn't only about fighting. But it's also a symbol of love and relationship. And that's why in the Lakota tradition, you can earn a bald eagle feather if you do something particularly caring. Just anything, anything you do that's selfless and not for yourself, but for the people so the people may live. Natani gets some eagle feathers out that he got from different ceremonies and begins brushing them over his face. <laughs> Just good, chills. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells me about a really bad day a few years back when he just felt lonely, like no one cared about him. I was sitting right here in this spot. There was a bunch of eagle feathers hanging right here. I was like, I got eagle feathers protecting me. These eagle feathers protecting me, protecting me. A song started coming to him. So then I just started writing, and it just came out. Got these eagle feathers protecting me. Yeah, got these eagle feathers protecting me. Got these eagle feathers. He said that when he thinks about how these creatures behave in myths and the wild. When I fan myself off, when I when I bring these over my face, you know, it's like I feel a connection to these birds. And this might sound funny, or might sound off, but I feel a connection to my ancestors. I do. Like, I don't have to be lost because I feel love. When I tell him the story of how caring those dads in the trio were observed to be, he's not surprised. Oh, no, yeah. Science, science is catching up to indigenous philosophy, for sure. Protecting <laughs> me. Now, as for the end of our eagle story, when a trio loses one of its members, that's it for the trio, right? Oh, no, no. <laughs> because it turned out that the next fall, the two dads returned with a new female. And we, we were just going, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> So if I went right now, like, could I could I peek? You sure could, yep. I pull up the live feed of the nest. So I'm looking at it right now. So I see this, it's winter, so it's a tree without leaves, and there are all these And some four branches. years later, that new trio is still together. As Ed and I talked, we could see them up there, 
in the nest together. And I see the white head and the yellow beak of an eagle. She, she's just laying eggs. Wow. All told, the two dads have lived together in a trio for about a decade, fledged about 20 eaglets, and been a part of the story that, along with some human help, brought the number of bald eagles back from near extinction and got them off the endangered species list. <laughs> yeah. I look at this as probably one of the greatest wildlife success stories that we've ever had in the United States. And it turns out that is not the only trio of bald eagles that has been observed in the wild. In recent history, there have been at least nine trios documented in nature. And increasingly, scientists are beginning to think that this quote-unquote cooperative nesting is not nearly as uncommon as they thought. I think we'd probably be amazed if we really knew all of the unique things that happened with wildlife because we just don't know the secrets in their life. Ed says this whole experience really flipped his understanding of bald eagles, helped him to see that in a certain way, he had been blinded by the eagle on the quarter, blinded by the story of the bird as a ferocious and independent being. Would you ever call what, what's happening between these birds love? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you would? Oh, absolutely. You would? Yes, indeed. You don't shy away from that but that word Not between whatsoever. animals? No, no. Huh. It's, it's family bonding, and that happens. You know, love is family. I, I see nothing wrong with saying love and animals. All right. Thanks so much, Ed. Oh no, Songbud's got a mohawk and an electric guitar. I want to hear the eagle! Now multiply that by three eagle! Yeah, I want to hear the eagle! Now I want to hear all three eagle! Kofinski, everyone. Terrestrials was created by me, Lulu Miller, with WNYC Studios. It is produced by the very talented, like talents, talents, Anna Gonzalez and Alan Kofinski and me. If you liked what you heard there, there are many more episodes waiting for you to discover about various other animals. Just head on over to terrestrialspodcast.org or subscribe to Terrestrials wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. 